them. So today, go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. And the three of us, right, we're going to read this together, right? So go ahead, James chapter 2, start in verse 14. Ainsley, take it away. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone said, we will say, but someone will say, you have the faith and I have the works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. And then James goes on to say, do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that apart from faith, works is useless? He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And the faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and, was, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. James goes on, he says, you see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And he closes this chapter by saying this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Give it up for these guys. Say thanks. Thank you guys. You're awesome. So we just wanted to start today by just reading that. Right, and kind of, kind of getting into the word, letting the word get into us a little bit, start out a little bit different. Uh, and it's super cool just to be able to hang out with this crew. Like I'm telling you, our students in this place, they love Jesus and they love the Bible. They love truth. Uh, that was one of the things we talked about early on. We kind of got started in student ministry. It was like, look, we want like meat, right? Stop spoon feeding this baby food. Like we want meat. We want to be challenged. And so I love a group of students like this that just loves to be challenged and then they rise up to it. So Here's something that I love that, that Patrick said last week, right? He said that there's no part of our lives that Jesus doesn't step in and say, there's a better way to do this. Right? So Jesus steps into, there's not a part of our lives that Jesus would look at and say, you know what, you're good. Like there's not a part of our lives that Jesus would go, like, don't worry about it. Like, I think the cool thing about this is that Jesus steps into every part of our lives and says, listen, we can improve this. There's a better way to do this. There's a better way to live. There's a better way. There's more room for my presence. There's more room for the whole. Jesus doesn't let us settle, right? Jesus doesn't settle for less, and he doesn't let us settle. And so what we learned over the last few weeks is this. James is not pointing his finger at us. He's not wagging his finger at us saying, like, you better change your life. You better change your life or else. Here's what we know. James gets how this feels. James knows what it's like to have Jesus step into his life and say, hey, James, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to live. James gets how this feels, and he knows how this works because James didn't just preach, right, that Jesus changes everything. James experienced it firsthand. James knows what it's like to have, have his life get rearranged and rethought and reworked by Jesus. So when James speaks to us, when he writes us a letter, you have to read this knowing this dude knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to get your life rearranged and rethought and reworked by Jesus. Now, here's an important thing for us to remember today as we dive in. This, this letter that James wrote, James is actually writing to and he's talking to believers in Jesus. Like, that's his audience. Like, sometimes in, in some of these books, some of the writings, right, like Paul writes a lot to some pastors, right? Paul will, will write a lot to some churches that are, that are dealing with some stuff. And there's times that they kind of address 
They share things that maybe are, hey, look, this is kind of intended for the people in the room that maybe are, are, are wrestling or struggling with, maybe haven't trusted Jesus yet. James is writing to people that have trusted in Jesus. He's writing to believers. And so what we read, right, what, when we read, when you and I read the book of James and we seek to apply what he's saying to our lives, we have to push back against two assumptions. And I, I've kind of figured this out myself, right, as I've, as I've kind of jumped into James with you all, right, and I'm allowing James to teach me some things, I realize, like, I have to kind of push back against two assumptions. And the first one is this. We assume, as believers in Jesus, that a message like Jesus changes everything is just for people that don't believe in Jesus. Right? That's an assumption that we can make, right? Like, that's who... That's who needs to change, right? Like the people that need to change, the people that need everything about their lives changed, that's for them. It's for those people that don't know Jesus. It's not for those of us that do know Jesus, right? Wrong. One of my friends, Jim, says it like this. He says, believing in Jesus isn't the finish line, it's the starting line. And I think it's important for us to remember that, that, that new life, the with God life that we talk about so much here at Adventure, right, that, that starts, new life begins with us receiving the gifts of grace and mercy, right? Grace that transforms us, mercy that forgives us, lets us up off the mat, right? That with God life, the relationship with God through Jesus, all of that starts when we trust Jesus. It's the starting line, not the finish line. So that's the first assumption that we have to push back against. We have to push back against this thing that in us that assumes, well, this, this, is really, this really isn't for me. It's for people that don't know Jesus, that's not true. The second assumption we have to push back against is this. As believers, it's easy to assume that once we've made a decision to trust Jesus, we can put life on cruise control, right? And we can just sit back and coast. Like it's like, I've trusted Jesus. I've trusted Jesus, now I'm good. I've trusted Jesus, and like, so it's like my, my, my eternal retirement plan has been figured out, right? I've figured out where I'm going to spend the rest of eternity, so now I'll just hang out. I'll just hang out and, and play the waiting game, and, and I'll wait. I'll wait for Jesus to come back, or I'll wait for the moment when my life on this side of heaven is over, and then you know what? Now I'm good. I'm good. I get to go to heaven. But here's what we know. James is writing to believers not only to tell us about but to show us that the with God life isn't a passive life. The with God life is not a passive life. The with God life is not a waiting game. The with God life is an active life, right, that is continually being shaped to look and live more like Jesus. So for believers in the room, Jesus still changes everything. And for believers in the room, this isn't a passive life. It's an active life where we are continuing to grow in our trust and our faith and our obedience and allowing Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit to renovate our lives to look more like Jesus. Now, here's the thing. The verses we just read, the verses we're going to dive into today, they're a little controversial, right? There's, there's kind of controversy surrounding these because here's why. It could seem at first like what James says about faith and works kind of flies in the face of, of, of everything that we've taught and that we've preached and that we've worked on, right? Everything that we've unpacked about the gospel here at Adventure, it can seem like this kind of flies in the face of this. Now, here's what we read. Paul, who wrote another letter to a group of believers in a place called Ephesus in chapter 2, here's what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, for, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, right? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. See, we read stuff like that, 
And then we read what James says. And there's a part of us that goes, hold on a second. Like, did the Bible just contradict itself? Did the Bible just contradict itself here? Like, did, did, did somebody, who didn't get the memo? Like, who didn't get the memo, James or Paul? Like, what, what's going on here in this moment? Here's what I, I got. I, just, I found that I, this is amazing, right? I learned this, right? I learned, I, I, as I dove into this this week, I got to see this. I've, I've known this for a while, but I got to see it for, with a really clear picture. James and Paul are actually on the same page. They're actually on the same page. Because here's what happens. A lot of times people that like to kind of argue that the Bible contradicts itself, what they do is they pit Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 against James 2. But what they leave out is verse 10 in Ephesians where Paul says this. He says, here's why we've been saved. For, it's, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, again. People want to argue, or people want to say that the Bible contradicts itself, and they pit Paul and James against one another. And usually what they cite is, is James 2, is what James says in chapter 2, and what Paul says in, in Ephesians 2. Here's what I read this week, and I thought this was a great quote. It says this, James is not and cannot be arguing that works must be added to faith. He cannot argue that way because that would mean that the cross of Christ means nothing. And here's what we know about James. We know that that's not how James feels about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, James was Jesus' half-brother. Jesus was his big, older half-brother. And what we've said is this, that most likely it was Jesus' death on the cross and the fact that Jesus crashed his own funeral, right, not dead, right, that resurrection was what changed everything for James. James wasn't a believer in Jesus, for most of his life, James did not believe that his older half-brother really was who he said he was until this moment. So we know James would not belittle the cross of Christ. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't say, hey, that actually means nothing. Because here's what we know. Jesus' death and his resurrection, right, that, that's at the heart of what James preaches and teaches throughout his letter. That's at the heart that Jesus changes everything. Well, how does he do that? Because he is who he says he is. Because he did everything that he promised. Because people tried to murder him and bury him, and it didn't work. That's why. Another great quote I read said this, that, that James and Paul would both agree that you and I, we are deeply loved, and I love this, unconditionally forgiven, and I think this is one we often overlook, and affectionately liked. Like, I think sometimes when we think about what grace does, what the gospel does, like what mercy does in our lives, is that it kind of, it transforms us to a place where we're at least somewhat tolerated by God, right? Like, we're somewhat tolerated, like, we kind of still get on his nerves, and he gets frustrated with us, but you know what? We've got this grace thing, so he tolerates us. I love this, that, that James and Paul, they agreed that we are deeply loved, we are unconditionally forgiven, and we are actually liked. God likes you. He doesn't just love you, he also likes you. We are affectionately liked by God. Why? Because of the transforming power of grace that we receive through faith in Jesus alone. So as we unpack this today, I want to be super clear that James isn't, nor are we here at Adventure, saying that you and I can be saved by anything or by any means other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's it. That's the only way. Can't be good enough, can't be smart enough, can't be rich enough can be pretty enough, handsome enough, whatever it is. It's only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. 
But here's what James is arguing, and we're going to unpack this together, right? Here's what James is wanting us as believers to understand and apply to our lives. It's this, that genuine biblical faith, which is what we believe and trust in. Like, if you're looking for, like, a definition, like, what is faith? Faith is one of those things that's kind of hard to nail down. Like, what is it? Faith is ultimately what you believe and trust in. And typically what we do is this. We put our faith in, we believe, and we trust in things that we think will take care of us, provide for us, keep us safe, those kinds of things. So when you think about faith, that's what it is. Genuine biblical faith, which is what we believe and trust in that will take care of us and provide for us, right? James would say is that kind of faith will be characterized and expressed by tangible faithfulness, which is how we live. That's what James is saying. That's what he wants us to get and understand today. That our faith, which is what we believe and trust in, will best take care of us, will provide for us, that we can trust, that is good for us. That genuine faith will be characterized and expressed through faithfulness, which is how we live. That's tangible. Right? So what we would say is this. Faith alone is what saves us. But it's a certain kind of faith. It's not a passive faith. It's an active faith. Again, if you want to grab a picture of this, like that's how we take notes here. If you're new, like you want to know how do, we, how do you take notes at Adventure, take a picture of the screen. Here you go. Here it is. The kind of faith that saves us is one that produces attitudes, which are internal, right, inside of us. Attitudes and actions external of faithfulness. The kind of faith that saves is one that produces an internal attitude and an external action of faithfulness. That's what it looks like. That's the kind of faith that saves. That's what James would argue, and that's what Paul would say. Right? He would say, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith so that you can't boast. By the way, that sets up the good works that God has set aside for you to do. You're saved by faith, right? You're saved by grace through faith. But you don't just sit there. You take action. You step into this. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to go through this. If you've got like a pen or a highlighter or something like that, you're allowed to write in your Bible. That's okay, right? Um, I want to make sure that we understand what faith means and what works are. Because as we unpack this today, we're going to need to understand kind of what these two things are, faith and works. Because oftentimes in church, one, we don't preach on the difference between those two. It doesn't get explained really well. And so these two things always seem like they're opposed to one another. So here's what it means. We'll start with faith. Faith, so circle, underline, highlight that word faith in your Bible. Faith is the Greek word, fun one to say, pistis. That's a fun one, right? You can can kind of skirt up to the line on that one. Pistis is the word for faith in Greek. And here's what it means. Here's the definition. So when James writes to believers, when James writes to the Christians in the first century, it's not just what this word means, but when they read this, Or when someone stood up in front of them and read this out loud so that they could hear it, here's how they would have understood this. Believers back in this day, they understood faith to mean what's on the screen, right? That that it is a, it's faith is a conviction. Faith is a conviction or a belief regarding our relationship with God that includes active trust and obedience. See, that's not just how they would have read it, that's how they would have understood it. That yeah, faith absolutely is connected to and has everything to do with my relationship with God, but that faith is not separated from, nor does it lack 
active trust and obedience. So another way of saying this, kind of for us, is that faith, which is belief and conviction, includes active faithfulness, trust and obedience. Genuine biblical faith is confident belief and faithful action. Like that's for us to start looking at what is genuine biblical faith? It is confident belief and faithful action. And I found this to be interesting as I read more kind of just culturally how this would have landed with people back in this day. It's interesting because when we talk about faith here in 2022, when we typically talk about faith, we talk about I believe in Jesus, right? I believe in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. Back in the first century, they would have said it like this. I believe on Jesus. I have faith on Jesus. It's different. It's subtle, but it's different because it has everything to do with the foundation of your life and the way you live it based on that foundation. So they would say, we build our lives not in faith, but on faith in Jesus. My life is lived on my belief. I stand on my belief in Jesus. And I love that. For me, it kind of makes me want to change the way we even talk about it. Like, what do you believe in? Well, I don't, I don't just believe in Jesus. I believe on Jesus. There's an active piece to this. So that's faith. That's what faith means. Let's talk about works. I found this fascinating too. The Greek word for works literally translates as employment, right? We, it translates to employment. And so here's what this means, right? Again, how the people back in this day would have understood it. When we believe in Jesus, when we have faith on Jesus, right, we begin to work with Jesus. We begin to work for Jesus, and we begin to do the same work that Jesus did. That's faithfulness. So when we believe on Jesus, we start to build our lives on Jesus. That's faith. That's what we believe on. That's how we're operating. That's what we're shaping and wrapping our lives around. When we begin to believe on Jesus, at the same time, we begin to work with Jesus. He said, listen, you're going to go make disciples, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Right? We begin to work with Jesus. We work for Jesus. That's what we do. We do the same work that Jesus did. That's faithfulness. Faith is what we believe on. Faithfulness is how we live. You're seeing the difference? And so Jesus would say that the work that we are to do, the work that we as believers are to engage in, is really kind of two things, really three things. It's to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love ourselves in the same way, and love our neighbors in the same way. And that's the two greatest commands. Jesus says everything hangs on those things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God with everything. Love people with everything. That's the work that Jesus invites us into. That's the work that Jesus did. That's the work that he wants to share with us. So you see how these things start to fit together, faith and works. And see, here's how we can sum this up, right? We'll sum this up and then we'll dive in. Right, faith, again, belief, conviction, right, on Jesus leads to, again, taking on, taking part in, and working, like doing the work of Jesus to love God and love people. And if James, were liter- if he were here today, if he were here today, I think what he would say to us is this, that any other faith, any other kind of faith, other than this, any other kind of faith is just a perceived spiritual faith. That it doesn't produce tangible actions. It doesn't produce works of faithfulness. That kind of faith 
is really self-deception, and it's not a reality. You have a perception, right? You have a perceived spiritual faith. It's just a perception. But you know what your perception is? Not a reality. That's what James would have to say. If, you're, if your spiritual faith does not produce tangible actions and works of faithfulness, then you're just deceiving yourselves. And your faith is not real. I listened to a, to a sermon this week, and it broke down the ways that kind of James wants to get his point across when it comes to kind of the perception versus the reality of faith. And it was so good that I'm just going to steal it, right? So here we go. The first thing that James would say is this. Faith without works is useless. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verses 14 through 16. Here's what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but doesn't have works? What good is it? He says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? One of the reasons I love James is he's a big illustration guy, big illustration guy, James is, right? James doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't just say that, that faith without works is useless. James gives us a picture of what useless faith actually looks like. And I like it. It's like I told you, I like, I like to read books, especially ones with pictures. I like to picture James's book being fully illustrated, right? His letter being like, here's what it looks like, guys. Here's what he does. He gives us a picture of what useless faith looks like. He says, you know, if you find someone who is poorly clothed and lacking food, let me just tell you what this doesn't mean. What James doesn't mean by, by, by coming across a brother or sister that's poorly clothed and lacking, it, it doesn't mean that they don't have nice clothes or they don't dress well or they eat junk food, right? That's not what he's saying. Like, I can remember growing up as a kid, and I don't know, maybe if you're like an 80s kid, 90s kid like me, like you remember guest jeans. You remember guest jeans growing up? Dude, all the cool kids had them. Guess what they didn't make guest jeans in? Husky. Right? There was no husky, and I would go, we would go to Bacon's. You remember Bacon's? Taking a trip down memory lane, right? We'd go to Bacon's, and I would beg my mom, oh, mom, like the cool kids at school, they all wear guest jeans. And she's like, Brad, they don't make husky. And so I would walk, I would walk out of there. I'd have to leave my dream hanging on the rack Right, And I would walk out of there in my Bugle Boy jeans that had reinforced knees. You had to crack them like a glow stick before they would actually bend. Right, Like they could take, they're bulletproof. If you shot me in the knees, the bullets would just bounce off. But Bugle Boy made husky. So, yeah, you know, like that's, we needed that. Us big boys, us big boys needed those reinforced knees, right? But that's not what James is talking about. James is not saying, hey, if you come across a brother, sister in Christ, that wears husky bugle boy jeans and eats junk food, right? That's not what he's talking about. Here's what this means, right? And we can throw this slide back up. When James says poorly clothed and lacking food, he's saying, hey, there's a person in your church. There's a person in your family of faith. There's another believer that you know that's fallen into a situation where they are not able to survive from day to day. That's what that phrase means. So catch this. A brother or sister, another believer, is poorly clothed. That phrase literally means naked. They have no clothes. They're lacking in daily food, which means this. That phrase means they cannot provide food for themselves. And the same sermon that I listened to said this, like, what, what's the use? What's the use in saying that we believe in Jesus and then looking at somebody in our church family or another believer that's naked and starving and saying this, hey, look, I know you're starving, and I know your kids are hungry, 
And I know you're probably not going to survive from Sunday to Monday, but you know what you should do, fellow believer, fellow church member, fellow church, fellow Christian? You know what you should do? I know you're hungry. I know you're cold. I know your kids are starving. But here's what I think you should do. I think you should go put some clothes on and have dinner. Grace and peace. God bless you. James says, what what good is that? And judging by the silence in the room, I think you would agree. What good is that? Matt Chandler says this, where there is perceived faith without works, it's useless. Because it does not minister through us, the one in abundance, to the one in need. When it comes to faith and faithful action, we have been blessed by God to live an open-handed life that shows that we are not enslaved by our blessing, but that we are grateful for them. And gratefulness is best shown through generosity. I heard somebody say one time that, that faith without faithfulness leads to spiritual constipation. And you don't need an illustration for that, right? What James wants us to understand is this. He's saying that, that in being blessed by God through faith, we now become the conduit of faithfulness that the blessings of God can now flow through to those in need. And he would say this, if you keep your faith to yourself and you never engage in faithfulness, then your faith is useless. James gets pretty gnarly. I like to think that that this section of James was written back in the day in all caps. Here's what else he says. He says, faith without works cannot save us. What does that mean? Faith without works can't save us. Look down in verse 17. It says this, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show, Show me your faith, James says, apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, listen, you you have faith, you believe that God is one, you do well. You do well to believe that. But guess, guess who else believes that? The demons. They believe that, and they shudder. So here, what I love about James is he brings in an imaginary opponent, right? And I like to, I like to imagine James, if he was reading this in front of a group of people, saying like, but someone will say, while making heavy on, eye contact with like one person, right? Like, but someone will say... You have faith and, and I have works. And his wording is a little funny here, right? Because what this, what's happening here is James, it's like a first-person argument in the third person. James, here's what, let me, let me just translate this, right? James's imaginary opponent says, here, James, here's the thing. You have faith and works. You have faith, James. You have faith and works, James. But here's what I say. I just have faith, James, and that's all I need. James, you have faith and works, but I just have faith that the Lord's going to save me. And here's the thing. James is great with that. James is great with having a faith that believes that God will save us. But James' argument is this. If you say you believe that, then show me. Show me. Don't just say it. Show me. I listened to an illustration about this, and again, I'm, I'm stealing it, right? In our house, we have a we have a, a set of tables in our or a set of chairs in our house that were like my great 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 grandmother's chairs, right? Kitchen chair, table like that. I'm pretty sure they're on cave paintings somewhere, right? Like they, that's where the original artifact would come from. They're very old, 
again, Bugle Boy Husky can look at those chairs and go, no way. Right? There's no way if I sit, it's like, the, it's like made of like a basket, right? There's no way if I sit in this chair, there's no way it's going to hold all of this, right? I don't have faith. I don't have faith in that chair, right? But I can look at these chairs, right, the chairs you're sitting in today, and I go, those are, those are tough, right? They're made of metal. They weigh as much as a boat anchor. We've tried to, I've moved them a thousand times. Like these chairs, like I have faith. Here's the thing, I have faith in that chair, I don't have faith in this other chair because it looks kind of rickety, it's old, I don't think it's going to hold me. But you know what, I do have, I have faith in this chair. I have faith in this chair. And what James would say is this, if you're saying that you're willing to, if you're saying that, that, that you believe that the chair will hold you, then have a seat. James argues this, how can you show me your saving faith apart from some kind of faithful action? Well, I just know it to be true. I intellectually believe in the chair. I intellectually believe in the chair. I I know what the chair is made of. I trust the physics of the chair. I just know it, right? I just know it. I I know what I need to know about the chair. I don't really need to sit in the chair to, to believe in the chair, right? James says, no, that won't fly. When it comes to faith, Putting our faith on Jesus. Not just in, but on Jesus. When it comes to faithfulness on Jesus, and faith on Jesus, and faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus, for James, what he would say is this, knowing a lot of information about Jesus and thinking that that's enough to save you, but never actually doing anything with or about what you know won't cut it. Here's a hard truth. Here's a hard truth. There are people in this world that know a lot about the Bible. They know a lot of information. But here's the thing. Here's what they're missing. There's no real love for God at work in them. There's no real love for people at work through them. And what James would say is this. In the end, they're not saved. They're just smart. And this is where James gets really gnarly. He says, you know who else believes in that? The demons. They believe. And I, st- I started thinking about that. I started thinking, you know, you know who has more intellectual and theological head knowledge than all of us put together? Satan. He's got a lot of theological head knowledge. He's got a lot of intellectual head knowledge. More than, than all of I heard one preacher say one time that demons probably have better theology than most pastors. That's the truth. But here's what, that, that knowledge does not make them children of God, does it? That knowledge, what they know, doesn't make them children of God. And we could say that, that for sure, Satan and his demons, they're not saved. So simply knowing good doctrine and having correct theology won't save you. Matt Chandler would say this, intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation, And so James echoes this, right? He says, when it comes to faith and faithfulness, don't just tell me what you know about being saved. Show me that you are. Don't just tell me what you know about salvation. Show me that you're saved. Well, how do we do that? What does that look like? 
James gives us two examples of what saving faith looks like in the lives of two people, Abraham and Rahab. When, see, here's what happened. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, right? That's where we find Abraham's story. When God told Abraham, after everything that they had been through, to sacrifice his only son, let me tell you what Abraham didn't do. Abraham didn't theoretically play it all out in his mind and say, yes, God, you asked me to sacrifice my son, and you know what I can do? I can think about that, and I can imagine Based on what I know, the information I have, God, I believe theoretically and hypothetically that you will provide for me. So there's no actual reason for me to do anything with what you told me to do because I believe that you're good. I believe that we're good. I'll just stay here. Remember, faith, that belief and conviction, what it leads us to is faithfulness, which is active trust and obedience. Abraham had genuine saving faith. And because of that, here's what he did. He saddled up his donkey. And he brought his son Isaac, and we're going up the hill. And you have to imagine this. Even when Isaac looked at his father and said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? How come we're not bringing the sacrifice? And Abraham says, just just load up the donkey. We're going up the hill. It's crazy the parallels between this and what God actually did through his own son, with his own son. We read in scripture that that Isaac even had to carry the wood of the sacrifice up the hill. Just like Jesus had to carry the crossbeam up the hill. But see, God stops Abraham short of what God actually did. See, Abraham, he loaded up the donkey, he put his faith in action. And so in that moment, right, where he has his son bound, like he's getting ready to sacrifice his son, an angel of the Lord shows up and says, stop, don't harm your son. God's provided a sacrifice. There's a ram over there caught in a bush. Sacrifice that, not your son. And here's what we learn. What James tells us is Abraham, because of his faith and his faithfulness, got to experience God's own unique, perfect brand of faithfulness at work in his life and how he provides for us. You understand that? And if we're not faithful, if all we do is just say, intellectually, I believe and I know and I understand, but we're not faithful, do you see what we miss out on? Our faith, God meets our faithfulness with his own perfect brand of faithfulness, and that's incredible. We miss out on that. And what James says is Abraham, because of faith, expressed through faithful action, was ultimately called a friend of God. If he had done nothing, if Abraham just had done nothing, it it would not have been credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. He would not have experienced God's faithfulness at work in his life, and he would not have been called a friend of God. Abraham just went, well, I, listen, I can play all this out in my head. I see, how, I see where this is going. God, we're good. He would have missed out on that. And then I love this because James brings up Rahab. Because there's not a lot of stories. There's not a lot of, like, Abraham has songs written after him. Father Abraham, right? Like, left arm, right? Like, the, it's the Christian hokey pokey. Rahab, there's not many songs written about her. And like it says here, the Bible tells us that Rahab was a prostitute. And if you read her story, she lived in a place called Jericho, which is a big city with big walls. And the walls were actually so big and thick that people actually built their houses into them. And a lot of scholars believe that Rahab was one of those people, that, that she actually built her, her place of living into the walls of Jericho. She lived in the walls of Jericho. And just so, so, from, so, so we get some perspective, let me just share what I read. One author said this week, had to say about, about, about Rahab. He says this, we learned that she's a prostitute, that no little girl grows up dreaming to be a prostitute. So some wicked and deplorable things must have happened to Rahab to land in this kind of life. And here's what we know. Most of her life 
She was treated like an object and not a person. Rahab was treated like a soulless recreational vehicle that got used for pleasure. That's why there aren't many songs written about it. And Rahab, here's, here's what we know. Rahab, along with everybody else in Jericho, they had heard about this Hebrew people, the Israelites, and their God, that they were winning battles that they had no business winning, and they were conquering things that they had no business conquering. They heard about that. And so a couple of Hebrew spies come into the city of Jericho to do some recon work, and Rahab hides them. She heard about what God had been doing and what he was capable of. And in that moment, Rahab, who's an outsider, had a choice. She could turn the spies in or she could hide them. And here's what we know. Rahab put what she knew, faith, into action, faithfulness. And she hid the spies. You know what, you know what Rahab knew? Hardly anything. She had just heard rumors Rahab had never opened a Bible. She just heard rumors about what God was doing and what these people were doing. And that was enough for her to, to take action. And I'm sure that there was a part of her be that believed that if God can do all the things that I'm hearing about him doing, then maybe he could provide a new life for me. Knowing what her life had looked like up to that point, I'm sure there was a part of her going, well, if he can do that, Imagine what he can do here. But it wasn't theoretical. It wasn't hypothetical. She put her faith into action. She says to the spies when she sends them out the other direction, right, so they don't get caught, she says, remember me. Don't forget about me and my family. When the walls of Jericho fall, remember me. And when the walls of Jericho fall down, Rahab and her whole family are saved. Had she not put her faith into action, she and her family would have died when the walls came down. And it's not just that faithful action saved her life. I love this. When you fast forward a couple hundred years, Rahab shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. Let me just say this. If you walked into this place today and you feel like somewhere in your soul that you've messed up way too much, that you're too far gone, that you're too broken, or you're too messy to overcome your past, Think about Rahab. Think about Rahab, who through faith and faithfulness, not knowing much at all, just enough to put, to, to put her faithfulness, right, to, to exhibit faithfulness, right? Think about her, who through faith and faithfulness became like the great, great, great relative of Jesus. Jesus is willing to call her family. He's not afraid of that. He's not afraid of you. He's willing to call you family. But it was faith and faithfulness that saved her. It's got to be faith and faithfulness that saved us. And so now you can see, right, that the kind of faith that causes, right, the kind of faith that causes faithful action is truly the kind of faith that saves. The kind of faith in us that leads to faithful action is truly the kind of faith that saves us. So let's go into the third one, right? We're almost done. James would say this, faith without works is ineffective. Faith without works is ineffective. In Matthew 25, you can just write this reference down. Matthew 25, verses 41 through 45. If you want to flip there, you can. Write it down. Go read it later. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says to a group of people, he says this, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Here's why you need to depart from Jesus. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And those people that Jesus is talking to go, wait, hold on, time out, time out, time out. When, when did we see you like that? Like, we didn't ever see you like that. We didn't ever see you naked. We didn't ever see you, we never saw you sick. We never, like, we never, like, Jesus, time out, man. Give it, like, second chance. Like, run, run it back. Like, we never, we never, it's not our fault. We never saw you like that. Here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for the least of these, you didn't do it to me. You had faith, but it was ineffective. Why? you walked past those people. You walked past the hungry. You walked past the thirsty. You walked past the stranger. You walked past those who needed clothes. You walked past those who were sick and in prison, and you did nothing. He says, you didn't do it for them. You didn't do it for me. Well, Jesus, when did we see you? When did we see you like that? When you saw them like that. That's when you saw me like that. And you did nothing. It's ineffective. Jesus says, get away. James even says this in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, religion, the exercise of faith. That's what religion is. Religion is the exercise of faith. Religion, the exercise of faith that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one from being unstained by the world. Visit means to spend time with and invest with. God says, listen, you want to you know, know what the exercise of faith that I want is? It's this. Visit the lowest of the low, the people that are disqualified and cast out. Visit them. Invest in them. That's what I'm looking for. I've got two more things to say and then I'll be done, right? I promise. A couple of weeks ago, I said this. That there are times when bad Christians happen to good people. I want to revise that statement, right, based on what kind of James taught me this week. What I've realized is it's actually not bad Christians happening to good people. It's people that think they're Christians happening to good people. Church, let me just be straight with you. When that happens, it makes the actual authentic worth of, work of faith and faithfulness through the body that much harder. And here's why. Here's why. When there's really no true love for God in our hearts, there can be no true love for people. And when there's no true love for God or for people, here's what happens to Scripture. Scripture gets weaponized. Scripture becomes something to use against someone else. Words get put in God's mouth that he would never say. And people, innocent people, get clubbed to death by those who claim to be Christians that, that use their religious head knowledge to assault other people while at the same time ignoring those who are in need and who are hurting. Let me just say this, all right? I've never said anything like this before, but i got to say it today. Those people need to stop calling themselves Christians because they are not. Plain and simple. there is no love for God in you and no love for people that flows out of you, stop calling yourself a Christian because you're not one. You're not. 
claiming to be a Christian based only on your own head knowledge and based only on your own self-righteous religious rule following when there's no real faith for God or no real love for God or faithful love for others. It is ineffective faith that does not advance the kingdom and it only holds it up and hurts it. Stop calling yourself a Christian because you're not one. We see what effective faith looks like. We told the story a few weeks ago, the story of the paralytic, right? The guy was paralyzed, and his friends hear that Jesus is in town. What do they do? They carry their friend all the way up on a roof, on a stretcher, because they can't get into the house where Jesus is. And they bore through the roof to lower their friend down into the room with Jesus. And what, is, what happens? Jesus looks up, and the Bible tells us he saw their faith and healed their friend. That's effective faith. It says, I will stop at nothing to get you in the same room with Jesus because I don't just believe on him. In him, I believe on him. I believe he can change everything, including healing a paralyzed man. That's effective faith. And the Bible doesn't misspeak when it says Jesus saw their faith. Because what did Jesus see? He saw them carry their friend up on a roof, dig a hole in the roof, and lower their friend down. He saw it work. That's what effective faith looks like. And the last thing that James says is this. Faith without works is dead. Verse 26, he says, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I read a quote earlier this week. It says this, that when James says that faith without works is dead, he doesn't just mean that it's only outwardly inoperative, but that it's outwardly inoperative because it is inwardly dead. Faith without works is dead. It outwardly doesn't do anything because it is inwardly dead. I borrowed right today a lot, borrowed, stole a lot today from other teachers which is good stuff, right? I want to wrap up this morning by borrowing from one more, Charles Spurgeon, right, the prince of preachers. Here's what he has to say about this passage in James. He says, a tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of that tree is at its root, whether it has apples on it or not. He says, the apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its roots, But if that tree stands in the orchard and when spring comes, there's no bud, or when summer comes, there's no leafing or fruit bearing, and by the same time next year, it still stands there without bud, blossom, leaf, or fruit, you would say it is dead. It's not the leaves nor the apples that could have made it alive, but it is the absence of leaves and apples that is proof that the tree is dead. Spurgeon says, so too it is the one who claims faith. If he has a life, that life must give fruits, and by fruits, works. If his faith has a root, but if there be no works, Spurgeon says, then depend on it. The inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. It's a tough pill to swallow. But all Spurgeon's doing here is he's echoing Jesus in John 15. 
Jesus looks at his disciples the night before as he's on his way to the garden where he's going to be betrayed and arrested. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes from time to time so that it can bear more fruit. And I love the way Jesus kind of ends this little chunk of scripture. He says, by this, by the fruit that your life bears, by the faithful works of the faith that is at work in you, Jesus says, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here's what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus isn't saying that works, works are required for faith and salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is a faith that works saves. That's the truth. And so here's the challenge, right? It's the holidays. We just spent James chapter 2. It's like James, it's like almost like James wrote chapter 2 for those of us who are getting ready to invite a ton of family into our house or go to a house where there's tons of family because he talks about the first half, Patrick talked last week, about how we're supposed to treat other people, the ones that we don't like or the ones that don't like us. And he ends this chapter by talking about faith that works, faith that's visible through faithful action. We had an opportunity this week, church, wherever it is that you go, there are people in your life There are people in your life that don't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving. What would have happened if you, through faith and faithfulness, invited them to be in your living room at your table? There are people in your life that that don't have the ability to provide Thanksgiving for their family. What if if you did that? Hey, we got you. Through faith and faithful action. Because Because I believe on Jesus. Yeah, this is going to cost me some extra money to provide this for this person. It's going to cost me, but I believe on Jesus. So I believe Jesus is going to take care. He's going to meet me in that space. That he'll provide. What would it look like for you to put faith into action? Right, we, we say it's the 18-inch journey. You got all the head knowledge. What would happen if you let it get into your heart and start changing things around a little bit? See, I think sometimes we leave it up here because it feels safe. It's safe up here. If I let it in here, it might start changing some things. You're darn right it will. And what James would say is it starts changing things because it needs to. There's not a place in our lives that Jesus doesn't step in and go, hey, actually, there's a better way to do this. And that includes the way we believe and what belief leads us to. So may we as a church this week show our gratefulness for God's blessing through our gratitude to family, to friends, to neighbors, to strangers, to coworkers, to single parents, to the homeless, to the hungry. May we show our gratitude through our generosity.